Hello and welcome to another episode of 177 Nations of Tasmania. And today I have a really interesting guest from Romania originally, uh, Teodor Flonta. I've known Teodor for a very long time actually, and I think I might just tell a short personal anecdote uh, from about the first time I met Teodor when I was 11 years old and my parents told me that we were going to be visited by a gentleman from Transylvania. Now I'd, I'd never heard at the time, I'd never heard of Romania, but I had certainly heard of Transylvania and I was incredibly excited to meet someone from there and I think that I remember the first thing you said actually Teodor was that, look at my look at my teeth. <laughs> and I, I wasn't sure whether to take it too seriously at the time, but uh, I learned that was just part of um, Teodor's sense of humour, actually. And um, so, with no further ado, I'd like to welcome Teodor, who has a very had a very interesting life and has written several uh, books about his life in Romania. And I'd certainly recommend uh, his book, uh, A Luminous Future, which we're going to talk a little bit more about in a minute. So I'll stop talking and I'll welcome um, Teodor and I might just, uh, just start with a very simple question of um, can you uh, tell us what brought you to Tasmania and, and when did you arrive actually? Oh thank you so much Mark, I uh, loved your anecdote <laughs> but since we first met my teeth um, have shortened so you don't have to be afraid and you are in my house. So, uh, in Transylvania, we look well after the guests. Oh, that's okay. good. I probably don't have, I have the same imagination I did as when I was a child as well. Yes. Um, well, it, it often happens to me, actually, when I talk to younger people, uh, they can't locate Romania, if I tell them I am from Romania. But... Uh, as soon as I say Transylvania, they say, oh, and I, I'm sure they think about the uh, famous Dracula and so on, but yes. at least that all comes out. So it, it's some sort of recognition. Okay. Yeah. I left Romania. So to answer your question, it's a very long story, this one, but I'll, I'll, I'll cut it. I'll try to be short. So I um, actually left Romania in 19, January 1972. As you know, Ariela, she's Italian. So we married uh, uh, with great difficulty in Romania because uh, um, Romanians shouldn't have, uh, shouldn't have had contacts according to the law in Romania, uh, Romania at that time, shouldn't have had contacts with foreigners. Imagine with Westerners. Uh, that was uh, forbidden, really. Uh, but we somehow, we met, perhaps the story, I will tell the story later. We met, we fell in love in Romania, and then I managed, managed to um, go to Italy. And uh, we lived in Italy for uh, close to seven years. Had two boys whom you met, we, you know very well. <laughs> and uh, we all came to um, Australia in 1978. It was August, end of August. In Italy, it was hot, summer, and so on. But we landed, uh, we landed in Australia, in uh, Adelaide. I mean, we came to Adelaide, so it, it wasn't a shock. <laughs> Perhaps if we had come to Tasmania, August is still a cold month. Yes. So coming from 
Summer to Winter. Lupoia, Transylvania, February 13, 1951. Sometime after midnight, a black windowless van with its lights extinguished stopped in front of our house. Four men hurried out. Two of them entered the courtyard and headed straight for the door, while the other two jumped over the fence. One stationed himself beside the back window of our bedroom, on the garden side, and the other at the front window, overlooking the road. When they were all in position, the first man tried the door handle. He turned out to the second man, shook his head and peered through the window. Too dark to see inside, he shook his head again. The second man took a step forward and knocked on the door three times. Flonta Pavel, open up, he commanded. They waited for half a minute. The man knocked louder. Flonta Pavel, we know you are in there. I was asleep in the same room as my young parents. The loud knocks on the door woke me up and as if having a bad dream, I started crying. Mama rushed over and took me in her arms. In the dark, I saw the shadow of my father grabbing clothes, opening the window and closing it again. They are everywhere, he whispered. God help us, Mama crossed herself. Open immediately, otherwise we'll break down the door. We know you are in there, Flonta Pavel. We want to talk to you. The first chapter of your book was really, I found quite gripping because it describes um, through a child's eyes seeing your father uh, arrested yes, yes. by the, the secret police. A secret police, which was called is called uh, Securitate. Securitate mm -hmm. it comes from security. They secured their own positions there. You see the the leaders mm -hmm. of the Communist Party. So yeah. Securitate. That's that's how it was called, and it was dreadful. Yeah. Um, so I was born. Let's start with the village. Uh, I was born in a very little village uh, in Transylvania, um, located towards the um, Hungary. The village is called Lupoia, which translated into English would be the Valley of the Wolves. So it becomes some sort of predestined, in my case, name to have it in a, in a book. Yes. And um, as I said, my parents were uh, simple peasants. I mean, simple in the sense that uh, not highly educated. And uh, they had some sort of uh, less than 10 uh, acres of land. My father had, uh, since a young man, had also something called initiative. Uh, he learned uh, carpentry and he was very good at it. He, at a young age, went to Bucharest and worked with Italian architects. How about that? Yes. And what, what era was that? Uh, it was before the communists came, obviously, uh, uh, around 1940. Uh, he um, uh, built 
built had built had with his father they had a dis- little distillery built which is a big uh, pot of uh, is a cauldron right of uh, copper all right and he started making this plum brandy which is called palinka in Romanian and in Hungarian the neighbors they call palinka so be- when the communists took over uh, they actually took over in Romania 46 they won the elections by stealing them stealing the votes going uh, with uh, Stalin's uh, dictum uh, doesn't count the v- for whom you vote the, that uh, what counts is who 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 counts the vote <laughs> I mean, who count uh, the vote so he he started working with this thing at the distillery little distillery and as soon as the communist uh, regime came he um, was declared um, an enemy kabur in Romanian mm. which means the old t- taken from Russian kulak perhaps you heard the word oh, yeah. kulak the rich peasants no equivalent with um, enemy of the people and uh, he had a terrible hard life after that mm. persecuted incarcerated tortured and uh, imagine that he was the youngest um, enemy of, so called enemy of the people from my region only mm. 29 years old mm. and that I'm quite emotional yes. Sorry. What my father was guilty of um, was that uh, he employed seasonally for three months, two months, a year, two people. And that in the communist language is exploitation of man over man, right? So they uh, said that these people like my father had uh, either accept to be re-educated, that means saying yes, sir, all the time, to what they asked or uh, destroyed killed hence the torture the imprisonment the harassment uh, and that sort of thing so because a communist to many people i mean the, this communist ideology it appears um, can appear oh nice beautiful mm-hmm. let's all be equal let's all be this and that but it's all a lie the captain looked at him for a long minute My father was expecting the worst when the captain called the young militiaman and had my father taken out of the room. Instead of going back to the basement, he was put in a solitary cell, a tiny cell, one meter by one meter and a half. A light bulb hung from the ceiling at eye level, permanently on and blinding him. His only companion was a tub which served as a latrine. The walls dripped with water while the floor grate which cut into his feet covered a stream of cold water. The overflowing latrine reeked and the drop of water made to fall onto his head at regular intervals drove him mad. It was cold, so cold and he was naked he leaned his head against the wet wall to try to ease his agony unexpectedly unexpectedly the door would open and the guard would beat him severely never allowing his bleeding to stop nights and days were identical then a guard opened the peephole Prisoner Flonta Pavel, turn your back to the door. 
my father started, thinking that he recognized that voice. He was almost sure of it. Yes, sir, he obeyed. Have you turned your back? The guard asked. Yes, I have. Don't turn around. Cover your eyes. The guard handed him a cloth. My father couldn't resist. I'll do whatever you say, Purdelia. He knew the man. He had sold him Palinka now and then. The guard hit him with his gun on the back of the neck. The guard hit him with his gun on the back of the neck. You don't know me, scum, he said in a harsh voice. Oh yes, I know you too well, Purdelia, my father insisted. Another blow almost made him lose consciousness. Keep your mouth shut, the guard said, kicking him with his hard boots. The harshest period of um, uh, arrests and torturing people happened prior to Stalin's, to Stalin's death. Um, it was between 1949 and 1953, really. My father was arrested several times just for being labeled uh, Kyabur, that is, the enemy of the people. So the communists always said they had to be liquidated, exterminated, they had to disappear. Now they let a, a little door open for those who would um, repent. They didn't know about what to repent, but <laughs> they, those who collaborated with them uh, and accepted accepted to be reeducated. In other words, in other words, to say yes, sir, all the time. Um, those were saved. Now, my father mm, never could do such a thing, uh, but most of the time he would just um, shut up and do not make waves, uh, so to speak. What helped him was also his youth. Uh, he had energy and <laughs> many times he ran away. The problem was that most of the time they would arrest people after midnight and uh, take them straight from their beds. My father, having this palinka business, he used it to his advantage and uh, um, people would help him when they could. When they knew, for example, our neighbor uh, who was uh, in the war, the First World War with my grandpa, um, would, uh, um, would play the flute for him. He would play always the same melody when he would see the duba, which is the um, van, the police, the securitate van coming for my father or entering the village. So he would play the flute and we would all hear and my father will run for his life and will manage to escape that way. So the first arrest, he was taken to town, to Oradea, and then placed into a basement with so many people there where they had only a tub as a latrine and they were sleeping on the floor on cement, on concrete. And um, many people there had been tortured, had been tortured previously and they were suffering. And uh, 
two of these people whom he knew um, after the police finished with them sent them home not the police after the militia the securitate after the securitate finished with them they went home and uh, committed suicide they couldn't bear it anymore they were old people so many times he would be arrested for two to three days at the village hall with others, with other kyabur, other enemies of people, and they'll be shut into a room there without food and um, water. And my mother and I would sneak in at night and pass through the grate there, the door grate, pass the parcel with a bag with food and water to my father, and he will share that with them. On one episode, and my mother would send me, because I was small, <laughs> I was little, would send me with this bag, and I was going on my knee, on my fours, no? on my, after dark, uh, fell. And um, on one uh, occasion, the militiamen came out. As I had just finished hand handing my father the bag, and um, it was dark outside, there was no electricity, obviously, and I ran, and he heard the noise and said, uh, Stop, who is there? And um, I pulled the trigger, and a shot went out, and my mother was freaking. Uh, I was, when the shot rang, I was just, reaching my fa my mother on the other side of the fence then we ran apart from being arrested he had to do works useless tasks they would as punishment in reading from reading your book i got the um impression that as growing up in the village that you were surrounded by a lot of family and relations Yes, I was sort of fascinated when, when I was a kid growing up there by the life of village. Um, yes, I, although I was an only child, my father, sister, brothers are the same. And uh, it was a, I felt sort of protected uh, being in the midst of, uh, of the extended family, so to speak. Um, um, apart from that, I said that I was fascinated. Uh, there was some sort of uh, um, tradition of telling story. Um, so old people, men with mustache, uh, with pipes, you know, smoking pipes, uh, they couldn't go to the um, to the fields to do the work anymore. So they, uh, every house had a bench outside the porch yeah. on the street, really, no? On the street, but I mean, <laughs> close to the house. Actually, you, you would um, lean onto the house and sit on the bench. And these old people had a extremely formatting, formating role for, for, for kids, in a way, because, you know, they start coughing, spitting, <laughs> and, and, and smoking, and we, kids would gather and uh, sit down on the, on the dirt um, and listen to stories. Uh, it was, I was actually fascinated by that. I lived a lot of time with my grandma, Saveta, who is mentioned a lot in the book. And because she was only five or six houses uh, up yeah. from us. So I spent my, um, after my grandpa died, her, her husband, 
I, I slept at her place many times in the same bed. And she would tell me stories. But then I was always waiting for the evening. Because what she did, what the peasant did, uh, they went to visit the neighbor, the auntie, the brother, and they'll stay chatting for a while there, and they they'll uh, they'll talk, they'll talk mainly. No, men the men will drink obviously, but women would not. So I'd go there, and they would start talking, and at a certain stage I would uh, sleep, obviously fall asleep next to her, and then she. But the stories, some part of the stories will stay with me okay <laughs> and he stayed with me until uh, even now so. I, was go- I was going to ask you yeah. oh yes uh, apart from the the stories about other people and gossip and so they would tell me uh, stories uh, about ghosts for example okay. soldiers ghosts and they will swear they would be real you see uh, or about dead people coming from from uh, from the uh, tomb no from the uh, grave from the grave and uh, and uh, making noise at home and things like that, no? Yeah. Or or um, about the devil. Devil, yeah, he was big on story. And uh, and um, about priests and yeah, wolves, yeah, because we had the forest, a big forest uh, between my village and uh, neighboring some other on the north, no? Neighboring villages and. Um, um, the wolves were there, always with us, no? <laughs> in, particularly in the winter, you could see them sitting on the um, uh, margin, what they say, edge of the forest. I presume most of the, um, a lot of the people in the village were like farmers or living on sort of agricultural... They were peasants, that means the, their only means of sustenance was the land. Uh, so they would um, cultivate uh, grain, grain you say, the, yeah, and mice, the um, corn in other words, yeah. yes, then uh, barley, rye, all this, uh, then potatoes, um, carrots, yeah. tomatoes, every, everything. They, uh, that's how they lived, really. They didn't have jobs. They lived if they cultivate proper their land and as a young boy I my papa would take me with him to fertilize the land how he had ox stage and then he up- upgraded to horses later <laughs> later on <laughs> people. I'm talking about that age right we're talking about 1940s right so the tradition was that men would drink for sorrow when they were sorrowful and when they were joyful, right? These were the primary um, occasions. I mean, it, it, it wasn't a type of socializing we have today. You meet a friend, oh, let's have a coffee, let's have a beer, let's have this. No, you had serious business there to do. When you were uh, poor, you, you, you had a pain of some kind, you would drink with friends, right? And you'll tell them your pain, they tell you their pain, and the more they drank they forgot about the pain and then when joyful occasions ah having a boy it was the top the newborn boy will have to go much further thought my father through his alcoholic fog and get a real education the circle of ignorance that had subjugated the family for centuries would have to be broken. 
Under the curious gaze of the neighbors, he instructed the older men of the family, my two grandfathers, to bring me one book each, an ABC and a grade one maths book, as well as a sum of money. Both named Theodor, but known in the village respectively as Theodore and Todiera, they placed the gifts on my body. To demonstrate the importance of the male lineage in the family, the sum given by the parental grandfather had to be greater than that of the maternal grandfather. My father was not good at school, so he always told me, right? But he valued education. Somehow, his little experience, he was 26 or something, or 25 when I was born, but he had enough experience by then to realize that he, had, he would have done better if he paid more attention at school. But it wasn't all his fault. Drawing, fr drawing from his own experiences, no? my papa mm, realized uh, the value of education. Mm. Yeah. And perhaps also by going out of the village to work for a year or so in Bucharest, he realized... Mm, and he had a sort of a, a facility of communication mm -hmm. with people. And he listened to people. And yeah, uh, so that helped him. So, when this thing came over him, the persecutions and the imprisonments and so on, um, both he and mum lived for... lived for me. He used to tell me that uh, education was my salvation. Mm. Using this word, these words, really. And he talked about books being really deep in his thought saying that uh, books know more than people, mm -hmm. that I should read them. But he added, if they tell the truth. He was really aware of what happened. He, in communism, what happened to everything, yeah. because books were uh, censored and yeah. you, can't, you couldn't publish a book, for example, which presented ideas different from the one, yeah. no, the their views, the communist views. I often wonder 
how uh, so I often wonder how an uneducated man could come up with such a, a sort of comprehensive deep thought no yeah he realized what went on and i had to think over the years what because sentences would ring up in my ears so you, you keep in touch a little bit with the romanian what's going on in romania still oh yes i i, I read the Facebook, the newspapers, the daily almost. Now I'm more into Italian um, um, uh, newspapers because they have more things happening apart from the in pandemic and other things politically. Uh, and but uh, Romania has become a bit monotonous. All, all, always the same things: corruption, spread corruption, which yes. I know is there. One always look <laughs> looks for something different. It's part of a person's curiosity, mm. in a way. But in my case, was the realization that I couldn't live in a place like Romania forever. Um, I perhaps am a particular case because I, my parents were declared enemies, uh, enemies of the people, uh, and uh, I was um, four or five years old when that happened. It started with my primary school, okay? When I discovered a new language, Russian. So they started teaching us Russian in um, grade four. And here you are, I am the best in the class, right? We are not many, but I was the best. And um, then uh, the teacher gave me prize one of the rare occasions the teacher praised me because she wouldn't, uh, because my father was an enemy of the people, you know. So, and I said, oh, this is nice. I am good at something. So the teacher praises me. Before that, she would always sort of humiliate me when, when she would have the an occasion to do that. Yeah. Although I, I knew I was the best, best in the class. And she knew that. And she gave me the best marks, right? <laughs> she put it on the cover, I remember, on the cover of her book. And now, so, oh, good. I can do. Yeah, Russian. <laughs> so I discovered other worlds, mm. you see, through a language. I go home and I say, Papa, very happy. Today we learn Russian, and uh, yeah, he doesn't say anything, just serious. I, I can write in Russian, and uh, I, he said, okay, write, and I write Ada Doma, and uh, unexpectedly he didn't praise me, just stood there and pondered and looked at me, because he would always, you know, praise me. Yes, good boy. That's the way to go. Things like that, no? Yeah. When would come home with a good mark or uh, uh, happy, you know, in a way. 
And uh, then he, he started, uh, I never heard him before, said, um, I'll give you an approximation of what he said. These bloody idiots, um, and I w- wouldn't go into more vulgarity, uh, Russians, they ruined our country. They are the worst bloodsuckers in the world, and that's why I suffer, because of them. So yes, so I learned then from him how, how a bit about the world. There are different worlds. Some are better, some are not so good. But his papa continued, he said, but listen to me, you, you learn Russian, because who knows, but it would, you should get good marks, but don't get too, too hooked on it, something <laughs> like that. I realized then that languages was sort of, I had some, some attraction to languages, right? Yeah. I, I, I was a teacher. Mm-hmm. in high middle school not the elementary in middle school yeah. uh, uh, in the school next to my village okay. so I was walking or going by bicycle to my job for a whole year because <clears throat> and I was a titular so to speak because although I didn't have a faculty a degree because there was a shortage of teachers okay now you must learn in uh, communism, they did this. In every prof- profession, people who would not be showing that they were friendly towards communism, they were not communists, on the contrary, they spoke against, or something like that, they would be put aside, some would be sacked, some would be uh, just marginalized, and so on. Then shortages of professionals came about. There were short shortages in every profession, obviously. And with teaching, teaching was not, 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 not better in the teaching profession. So people like me, uh, if a school gave them the, the, the people like me, if a school gave them the job, actually it was at the province level, province level. So if the province through the school gave, gave you the job, even if you're unqualified, you'd keep the job for the whole year. Anyway, there, there were, wouldn't be anybody to substitute you. So they would, so they would choose, the schools would choose people from, uh, with uh, matric, with good results. Normally, you would get a job. We are talking about uh, 1960s, right? Now, the situation has improved, <laughs> obviously. And over the years, it has improved. But uh, that was then the situation. So I taught in grade 7 maths in uh, grade uh, 5 to 7 French and I think in grade 7 again agricultural science how about that peasant I was born so I had I tell you what I had to to hit the book there because I I didn't know what to teach but they there was a manual right okay <laughs> I was going to ask what did that consist of? Well, uh, working the fields, uh, methods of working the fields, and also uh, like plowing, like sowing and that sort of stuff, and also um, growing animals, I mean uh, keeping animals, looking after animals. But then not being able to enter 
to, to, to study economics. Then I said, what can I do? I, I was afraid I had to go the, uh, and do the military service. It was compulsory. So I said, let's do languages. By that time, I was fond of Italian, which I used to listen. I discovered on the pasture fields. I was there with our cow and uh, calves. And uh, my papa bought me transistor radio operating on batteries. So I was used to take this radio, which was a, a box, uh, I don't know, 30 centimeters per 20 or so, and uh, with me everywhere, put it. I would put it in a, in a bag, which was virtually a, a net, a net, a red net. It had to be red, communist, right? And net, a red net, and carry it with me on the fields, and listening to the radio to in various languages, neighbor neighborhood languages from the neighborhood, Bulgaria, um, Serbia, Hungary, Hungarian, and so on. And I discovered one day Italian, and I fell in and um, and I fell in love with that language, the sound. Yeah. Actually, I remembered my grand my grandpa had done as a pri uh, my grandpa was a prisoner in uh, Italy a, a war prisoner first world war oh, yeah. yes but he I was very little when he died but my neighbor was also mm -hmm. a prisoner with him okay. in war and he I told him uh, one, one, one evening he heard me listening to this radio on the porch there outside. I wanted everybody to listen to Italian, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was sharing <laughs> very generously with everybody, loud sound, <laughs> which was allowed in the village. And uh, he said, oh, you learn Italian, Theodor. I said, ah, it is Italian then. <laughs> because I, <laughs> I had doubts, you see. <laughs> and he said, oh, yes. And he started teaching me words mm -hmm. like uh, caro, amore, mm -hmm. uh, buongiorno. Mm -hmm. He remembered these words and he would teach me. And then he said, oh, you, you pronounce them better than me. All right. And then he started talking to me about my grandpa life he knew a lot mm -hmm. uh, my grandpa's life and uh, their adventures in Italy mm -hmm. uh, where they went what they did uh, and uh, they are coming back from the war and it was at the time that Transylvania was still under Austro-Hungaric um, uh, empire. It was then at the end of the war in 1918 actually yeah. Transylvania became part of uh, Romania right? Mm -hmm. uh, it had been before but uh, it was under, under the empire. So uh, okay then I wanted to go to the university to study Italian. There were lists of enrollments you had to enroll, mm. and uh, I wanted to get into the university, so 
I wouldn't go to the military to do the military service, which was compulsory. I realized that in Italian there were some six students per six candidates per place, and in Tartar, Tartar, there were only two. So daily I would consult the lists, and Tartar wouldn't grow, but Italian would, and French and Spanish and other languages would go up. That I enrolled in Tartar for fear of being taken to the military. After the closure of the lists, Tartar had 10, 11 students there, candidates for a place, and Italian had seven. So I was stuck. But I got in and I managed after the uh, first year to be transferred to Italian with great difficulties because the, the, the places were limited. And, um, but a good dean in the end uh, so I mean, accepted my application. But in the meantime, I would say that while doing Tartar, I was doing Italian at some courses in Italian at the um, popular university or University of the People. At the University of the People, where two of my future lecturers in Italian in the Italian department were uh, teaching, they they noticed me and they also helped me to um, be transferred to Italian. So I was happy after that. But another good thing happened to me by transferring. One of my lecturers was uh, um, an announcer, a speaker on the radio, uh -huh. official radio international. Romania, Radio Bucharest International is called now, then Radio Bucharest, but interna the international section, right? Where they transmitted uh, programs, mainly propaganda, yeah. into various languages, like um, English, obviously, French. And they had, a, as to, to English, they had this... A specific time only for Australia because of the right. wavelength. I don't know whatever specific. Could you be listening in Australia. Yeah, well, <laughs> here you are. <laughs> I don't know, but that's what that was how they operated it. Wanted to spread this propaganda everywhere. So I, um, so there were uh, English, Yiddish, uh, French, Portuguese, Spanish, all the major languages, right? Uh, and less major, and Russian, obviously, Russian. And uh, so I started by reading the news. And it's a long story how they took me instead of others, because yeah. we were sent by, from the university, uh, five of us, right? Mm -hmm. And I was in year three, but there were year five students. So in the end, they selected me and... Uh, another fellow from year five uh, university, because the university was going over five years. Yeah, right. Yeah, They're not three years or four, right? Yeah. Five years, that was the program. So in the end they chose me and uh, the, the fellow whom they didn't choose got somehow a scholarship to Italy uh, the next year. Then he asked for political asylum in Sweden, I remember. 
Yeah. <laughs> so the thing is that, that I started working at the radio and I was very well paid mm-hmm. because I was considered a casual worker. So I worked okay. two, two, two evenings per week. Then they increased it to three. And I worked from four to 12 o'clock mm-hmm. uh, at night. We had to record everything on tape. You remember the big tapes? Yeah. And uh, the tapes would be taken uh, to, I remember, 11th floor. I don't know, we were on second floor or something. 11th floor where the censors were. Mm-hmm. No? They had to look at the tape to think to, to, th- that everything was okay. And w- one of the... Um, our, the redaction, you say, uh, one of our uh, section of Italian was in cha- always in charge, a trusted person, no? Mm-hmm. That uh, I wouldn't say bad things, and but everything was, we had to read yeah. f- word by word. We couldn't talk freely, to, yeah, we couldn't deviate from what was there. So I was to do, I, I did this for... Uh, for three years, uh, until uh, until I went to Italy, uh, for, uh, until the end of 71. So from, I did this from late 67 until 71, four years. Okay. I did this, yes. And then uh, in year three, I uh, met um, Ariela at a linguistic conference mm-hmm. in Bucharest. Yeah. Again, Romance, Languages, um, Philology and Linguistic Conference was and um, she came as a newly graduate and a participant at the conference and I was um, sent by the university to uh, attend uh, to the request of these people then to be at the door and uh, if they asked questions where to go things like that or to if they needed something you know to pass the word to the officials things like because I knew languages and uh, other other people from other sections from english from uh, french and so on F- spanish i was chosen for italian right and then uh, uh, stroke of luck i met the woman of my life when ariela and i were engaged she was a f- being her a foreigner she couldn't practically go uh, we couldn't share the same environment, Le, uh, let alone having the same um, cabin in the mountain or having the same uh, hotel room and so on. Not that uh, um, we, we did it often. In order to go over these obstacles, I knew I had to pay, and I did on a few occasions. And uh, But I'll tell you... Uh, uh, another story about our things, uh, about my relationship with Ariella. So we were, or my, uh, we were engaged, and I, Ariella and I decided to go to the Black Sea. It was uh, uh, summer, and um, we went to the National Tourism Office, the touristic office there in Bucharest, and they said uh, we had to book a hotel to book things 
Well, you can't because she's a foreigner. So you can't get a room, not even two rooms if you are together. All right. So he said, um, okay, because she was a foreigner. So we go, we went, and we found rooms were available, mm-hmm. but uh, they were given to you, particularly when they knew that they could exploit the situations, mm-hmm. the situation, the owners knew, not the owners, the director there, because there were no owners. The state owned everything. No? Uh, but the man in charge there, or the woman in charge, they would, uh, some would become rich, all right, by doing this, because they they would invent excuses also for Romanians. We'd have a room, but if you winked at him or at her and showed some money, things would be fixed. So, I, so we got our rooms there. Then we had breakfast or lunch included, or, or we paid, I don't remember exactly, paid for the whole uh, day food there. So we had a surprise when we went down to the um, refectory, the, not refectory, the, the restaurant. To the cafe. No, it was a restaurant of the hotel. Because they accepted foreigners. So when they accepted foreigners, that meant they intended to take better care of the environment, of of the sheets, of everything, right? Yeah. Uh, because foreigners brought in dollars, yeah. while the poor Romanians were uh, worthless to them. Yeah, to, the Romanians couldn't really complain. <laughs> you complain, but <laughs> they would uh, say, okay, go ahead, complain to my boss, you yeah. see, and you wouldn't <laughs> obtain any result. That was, they were, uh, I mean, they were all a sort of a mafia. When it came to, to money, they split money among themselves. And, yeah. yeah. But the, the the hotel room. So I we went there, and the, um, the man who served, what is he called? The, um, the waiter. Mm-hmm. There in, the waiter says, okay, because he checked some documents. He said, ah, the lady is a foreigner. Now you go there in that area, mm-hmm. and uh, you, Mr. Flonta, go here. Hmm. So, so there, were, there was a pedestal, pedestal, uh, I remember, board, a big pedestal, and separated by the uh, rest by the, of the restaurant, by the other side of the bigger part of the restaurant, okay. by a cord, a nice cord, yeah. uh, blue. I, I remember the color, blue cord or red, <laughs> one of the two. And um, so I couldn't cross that line. I could hop over it, I mean, easily, because it was knee-high or a bit higher, just a bit higher. And Ariela had to sit. But we are clever when we were young. She sat, luckily the table closest to the court was um, uh, free. So she went there. And luckily on the other side... The table closest to the <laughs> to the court was free, and I sat on the other side. So, ah, uh, she was looking down on me, right? Because she was on the pedestal. <laughs> Isn't that an irony? It's, In your own country, yeah. you are humiliated that way, right? Yeah. I mean, a foreigner comes, irrespective of who or she was. 
He's put, I mean, we are talking symbolically, isn't yeah. it? Uh, meanings and metaphors and things like that. So you put the, the foreigner there on the, it, it, it ha- might have been uh, just in one sort of uh, happening, but it happened to me, right? Yeah. <laughs> it happened to us. You can ask Ariella. <laughs> and um, so she ate quickly her lunch and uh, took her uh, plate with a cake, with a dessert, and came down to me. Um, he didn't, she didn't cross the, the, the spring, but went around it, came down, sat with me. I was alone at the table, so I completed my meal, so we were on uh, equal footing now. <laughs> long story with um, uh, big events in it, Ariel and I, and then uh, I managed to leave uh, and um, start a new life in Italy. And as I said before, uh, I learned there what freedom really was, but I also learned that you had to fend for yourself and there was not much choice for me. While Ariela was in the system, she was Italian. I knew Italian, but many Italians knew Italian much better than me, so here I was, didn't have a, a profession, so to, so to speak. And I tried a few things, didn't work. But um, in the end, if you sort of uh, want something badly, you hopefully you can achieve it. For me, it wasn't such a smooth trans, uh, transition in the sense that I arrived in Milan. We lived with Ariela's mother. They lived together, only the two of them. Uh, Her other brother and sister were away. From the economic side, we were okay. But the women worked and I didn't have a job, okay? And I felt that from the first week. My English is not so good because I I started learning it at... uh, uh, thirty odd years. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. when when did did you start learning English in Italy? No, no, no. Here in yeah. uh, in South Australia. Oh, really? Yes. I, so you did you have any? I presume you had a little English when you mm, arrived. No, I didn't. Yeah, I could say good day or good morning, good something, but I I did not know any any English. When I arrived, I, I could read five, five languages, uh, five romance languages, yeah. and m- managed to talk, uh, to get my way through three of them, four, actually, of them. Yeah. Because mm. I should mention for people who don't know, that Romanian is not related to the languages, the Slavic languages. No, no, yes. Uh, many people said to me, ah, it's a Slavic language. No, no, Romanian is a a romance language. That means, not romantic, (laughs) means, uh, as some people say, uh, means neo-Latin language. (laughs) 
So why did we leave um, Italy? Well, Italy at the, in the 70s wasn't in the best economic position. Um, we, I personally uh, didn't find a good job, couldn't find a good job. I did work all these years there, but uh, I did what I could. And uh, from a um, um, humanistic uh, education, I had to work in constructions, for example, but not, not physically, in the, in the office. Uh, but anyway, we earned a living, decent living there. And Ariela had started working at the university at that stage, anyway, in a school at, at, at the university. And then um, an opportunity came to, for a position at the um, at Flinders University in Adelaide. So we went there, and um, um, it was for Ariela actually. So um, she taught in two. She wondered, and she was. The chosen one, so to speak, and uh, she taught in two departments, in Italian and uh, Spanish. And then uh, I started working in the Italian department there and doing uh, masters at the same st- at the same time. And uh, during that period of time, um, an announcement came from an. Ad- I saw an advertisement. Actually, not me, but not I, not me, but uh, my lecturer there, with whom my friend lecturer. Italian, with whom I taught a course, the Italian for Beginners. So here they were looking at the University of Tasmania for um, sort of um, experienced (laughs) Italian for Beginners tutor. So here, Ariel and I, no, I came along to Tasmania in 81 and uh, stayed here for a year and and a half almost but every month I would go to the kids and wife to Adelaide so um, my money was spent in, in <laughs> this way and here I was staying in college and um, yeah so that that was it and then in seven, in 83 Ariela joined me in the department I became the head of the department at the University of Tasmania department of I mean section of, of Italian in the uh, department of modern language and Ariela yes the two of us were the department at one stage yeah. Yes, but with help from the Italian governor as for casual tutors and that sort of stuff. And I know that you are going to ask me about my impressions of Tasmania. <laughs> so I'll tell you. <laughs> well, I've asked everybody. <laughs> Certainly. So uh, I had a, a beautiful impression while I was in the air, uh, floating above, uh, above the airport. For some reason... The aeroplane couldn't land immediately, so it took a few rides over the the bay. And I said, oh, my God, what a beautiful place. It looks like the fjords of uh, Finland I, 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 I saw uh, on uh, photographs and things like that. I said, oh, beautiful place. And the plane went down and down, and yeah, it was, it was nice. Then I, we came down to the airport, and the airport was small then. And that made a, that made a, bad, a bad impression. I said, oh... Even smaller, some <laughs> might say. Yeah, uh, uh, didn't pre- impress me. So the airport didn't impress me, but it's nice now. And I arrive uh, by bus in Sandy Bay, yeah. where the university is. 
And then uh, I look at the right, uh, on the right, I look on the left, and these buildings uh, remembered me of uh, Sergio Leone films, you know, the, <laughs> the far west. I said, what is, you see, because in Europe, even in the villages there, you have um, um, houses made of bricks, things like that, solid. But yeah. it, it gave me an imp impression of so, such a flimsy uh, um, um, thing. Not, 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 um, it wasn't, they were as if they were not going to stay <laughs> there for long. See? Are you talking about the university building? No, 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 no. Before coming to the university, just in the center of Sandy Bay. Now oh, okay. it has evolved a bit. But I'm talking about 81. So, there were all these white panels, sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, I had this impression that yeah. they were temporary. Well, we had a bit of a problem, uh, particularly Ariela and the kids, because, uh, but not a real problem, but their perception more, no? that... Um, the um, Adelaide is, was more cosmopolitan. Yeah. There are more Italians, and obviously we are surrounded by Italians. At the department, at the university, was Italian students were studying Italian. So, um, so when we came here, after a couple of weeks or so, um, when I couldn't accompany Ariela and the kids with a car, they would take the bus. Mm -hmm. And they had this impression. And the, and she was talking in Italian to them, right? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the, the kids, after a while, after soon after, said, Mom, don't talk to us in Italian <laughs> uh, anymore on the bus. And she said, why? Everybody's looking at us. <laughs> so you embarrass us. Self-conscious. <laughs> Self-conscious, yes. <laughs> so, so how did the offer from Stratus have come about? I found it mm -hmm. in, um, in the newspaper, oh. Corriere della Sera. Oh, yeah. I used to, I was interested in politics, politics, and I read the newspapers and what happened in Italy daily and so on. So I used, we used to um, live not far from uh, the San Siro, the stadium, yeah. the stadium, the, the soccer um, stadium. On the way back home from the thing, news, news agency there, Australia, no, senior tutor in uh, Italian, mm -hmm. Flinders University, Australia. Well... I said to myself, what is this tutor meaning? Because tutor is like governance for kids, like uh, um, kids minder, like in, in Italy and there. In our world, the tutor wasn't university, a university position, right? Mm -hmm. You would say assistente, assistance, no? Assistant. But so I came home and we looked at it and the salary was bigger than Ariela's uh, uh, salary in two jobs. She worked full-time in a school mm -hmm. and uh, um, part-time at the university, uh, giving a course at the university in uh, linguistics, structural linguistics. And um, 
So she understood more about this tutor thing, tutorship, yeah. and she started jumping up and down. It was for her, yeah. right? Because they required experience with language laboratory. And Ariela came out only a month before or two from a two, two, two month, from a two month long course on how to teach languages with the language laboratory. Yeah. So, and she had experience at the university and um, in, um, in schools. She was a, a teacher, right? Yeah. I was not yet. <laughs> and then she started jumping up and down. Let's go, let's go. But she said, I am not, I hate doing the documents and all that bureaucracy. I said, okay, you go, I'll do the documents and everything I look after that. And she said, yes. And I put together the documents. But then reality sank in, Ariela, her mother was alone there. Mm. But she was still, you know, um, able and agile and doing all the stuff a normal person does. And, um, well, she helped us a lot with the kids. And uh, But uh, then this position at Flinders had become available because an Italian lady from Venezia who lived on the Grand Canal there in a splendid house had left Australia, had left the position after a year or something, two years perhaps. Mm-hmm. She just didn't fit here, she thought, you know. So why I know these things? Because the professor from Flinders University sent uh, telegrams saying to Ariela, you go to Venice for an interview uh, with uh, this lady and um, we'll take it from there. Because Ariela was the first on their shortlist. But they had 60 people on the show, uh, uh, applying, came, coming, because they were for two languages, uh, Spanish and Italian, yeah. uh, applying from uh, South America, from Spain, from Italy, from everywhere where, wow. where there were people. So, yeah, so uh, I, uh, I accompanied Ariela to Venice, and this lady, because they were Italians, she knew that uh, Ariela would speak good Italian, she started speaking to Ariela in Spanish, Mm. which I also understand. Uh, And Ariela naturally uh, just went into Spanish and the the ladies at the city said, oh, let's stop doing this charade. You speak Spanish better than me. So (laughs) So, um, they gave us the job. They gave Ariela the job. But the big thing was that my boss didn't know anything about this. So many people from the office had taken the vacation, right? Because in August in, in Italy, uh, everybody goes, used to yep. go on vacation. And then he's, uh, I, sa- I told him that I'm going to Italy, to, to Australia. And, uh, and he looked at me, Australia? Are you stupid? <laughs> <laughs> No, <laughs> I don't think so. And he said, well, sorry, what are you going to do there? I don't know. I'll, we'll, uh, in the meantime, we have a job. Ariela has a job. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he said, oh, come on, Flonta, don't be silly. I'll double your pay. <laughs> no. 
he was mean before that. I'll double your pay. Oh, thank you. I said, for your offer. It's a bit too late. <laughs> we, from there, it was a beautiful thing. The university, uh, Flinders, paid our travel for the boys also. Stefano was four, and Ste- yeah. Francesco was five. Mm-hmm. It, we didn't take too much extra luggage, but we did take some. Try to stay within the limits paid by the university here. Yeah. And then we had to toss, Ariela and me, for the yeah. hand luggage and for the, the suitcase, between a pasta-making machine <laughs> and a big diction- English... Uh, Italian dictionary, right? And I think we made the right choice. We left the pasta machine at home, took the dictionary with us, and it stood us in good stead. Ariella knew, knew, knew a bit of English, but her English was Shakespearean English. So, okay. yes, she studied Shakespeare at one stage in original. Yeah. And um, we came here. She didn't understand much. And uh, it came that uh, after a few months, I understood more uh, Aussie language than than she could understand. So we compensated each other, but uh, it was was a big experience. I I was, I'll tell you what, I I started uh, with all the heavy stuff on my uh, brain that I had to, restart again mm-hmm. it was the second time no, after Italy yeah. which didn't go great I had to restart again here so I took it as my last chance in a way yeah. so that was weighing heavily on my brain all the time on my mind all the time and uh, I think we've Adelaide was was a good place for us to start. They were friendly people at the university there, more Italians who helped us, uh, who had came here, poor them, as um, very poor migrants. Some of them uh, paid from Australia. Some Italians from here paid for them, came on boats and things. They were lovely people. We were, you know, luxury uh, em- immigrants, really, because we came to a job, and I thank God for that, because, you know, uh, it's it's a different. Um, you can afford to think differently. Yeah. Also, I worked and uh, did a master's degrees there. Got this job here um, temporarily. Yeah. Then was renewed and they actually put me in charge and uh, we moved here uh, to Tasmania then in 83, in February. 83, the kids came down and Ariela also uh, within not long distance of of each other. And um, talking about family, you mentioned this, that people stay together more and so on. We have... uh, very good rapport with each other and uh, I mean with the, our um, grandkids and we have as you know a big family now here I mean big uh, three three Aussie members of 
my families, my family are here now, the, the, the grandchildren. Yeah. So we're proud of that. And uh, although all the other members of uh, our family uh, are born overseas, Stefano, my kids, uh, yeah. Francesco and Stefano, Stefano were born in Italy, yeah. uh, Anna um, in Romania, and uh, Rosalina in India. Yeah. So we're a multicultural um, yeah. um, um, family. But I'm glad you mentioned lockdown because um, to make a comparison to what I lived when I was under communism, you see, mm -hmm. that was total lack of freedom for us. And I think it's for the first time the whole world and the particularly the Western, the Western world I relate to daily now, no? has experienced such a, an extended, actually, lack of freedom. Yeah. imposed by the government, okay? Now, I imagine to have a government which imposes you in, on you and on your friends, on your family, on everything which moves, yeah. uh, to live in cages. Yeah. That's what we live there. Uh, and here we can accept a lockdown for a month, for three months, for six months. We can accept it. We know that this will end. But there, you don't know. Mm -hmm.